Hello and welcome to Talking Tudors, a fortnightly podcast about the ever-fascinating Tudor dynasty. My name is Natalie Gruniger and I'll be your host and guide on this journey through 16th century England. Are you ready to step through the veil of time into the dazzling and dangerous world of the Tudor court? Without further ado, it's time to talk Tudors. Welcome back to Talking Tudors, episode 98. I'm your host, Natalie Gruniger, and I'm so glad that you could join me. As always, I'd like to begin by acknowledging and thanking the wonderful listeners who continue to support this podcast via Podbean Patron and extend a heartfelt thank you to everyone who's taken the time to rate and review the show. Your support is very much appreciated. If you love the podcast and tune into every episode, perhaps you'd consider becoming a Talking Tudors patron. Just click on the Be My Patron on Podbean badge on the homepage of my website, www.onthetudortrail.com or click on the Be a Patron button on the Podbean app. Join the Talking Tudors patron family and in addition to receiving lots of Tudor-themed goodies, you'll be automatically entered into our patron-only monthly giveaways. January's prize is a copy of Rebecca Monet's beautiful Anne Boleyn paper doll colouring book and a one-month membership to the highest tier of Inside Hever Castle, a new online subscription that allows you to explore this magnificent historic property from the comfort of your home. If you've been considering supporting the work I do, then this is the perfect time to join. Now, on to today's episode. I'm excited that joining me on the show to talk about Anne of Cleves and her siblings is Heather Darcy. Heather is a certified German speaker and almost finished with her Master of Arts in Early Modern History. Heather's first book, Anna, Duchess of Cleves, The King's Beloved Sister, is the first biography about Anna of Cleves, researched and written from the German perspective using German primary sources. It's available in the UK and internationally via Amazon or your favourite bookshop. Her second book, Children of the House of Cleves, Anna and Her Siblings, is set for release in May 2022. It's also rumoured that Heather's writing a novella, which she hopes to self-publish in spring 2021. Heather also runs and maintains maidensandmanuscripts.com. Please note that during our discussion about Charles V's visit to England, the date 1521 is given. This should in fact be 1522. Apologies for any confusion. Our conversation is coming up straight after this short musical break, courtesy of guitarist John Sayles. Thank you. 
welcome back to Talking Tutors, Heather. How are you? I'm doing really well. It's so good to talk to you again. How are you? Yeah, I'm well, thank you. And it's so lovely to have you back on the show. Now, it has been a little while since you've been on, so I think a good place to start would be by you just introducing yourself to our listeners and just telling us a little bit about your background. Yes, my name is Heather Darcy. I'm the author of Anna, Duchess of Cleves, The King's Beloved Sister. I have a Bachelor of Arts in German Languages and Literature, a Juris Doctorate, and I'm finishing up my Master of Arts in the early modern history of Western Europe. And the biography I wrote about Anna is the first one researched and written from the German perspective, and it gives quite a different background of what was going on for Anna's family, why Anna entered into the marriage, and also why the marriage ended. And it, it's not because she was ugly. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> um, but that's me. I also own and maintain the website maidensandmanuscripts.com. And I'm on Twitter and Facebook and Instagram, although I admit I'm not very good at Instagram. I just started that. <laughs> then uh, I'm in the process of finishing up my second book called Children of the House of Cleves, Anna and Her Siblings. And it's kind of like a part two for the first book, but it looks a lot more at what was happening in Germany and the the German history, and it follows the life of her brother quite a bit because her brother and younger sister outlived Anna by almost 40 years, 35, 40 years. That's fantastic. I was going to ask you about your second book, which I'm very much looking forward to. So you've kind of covered what I wanted to know there, but I did want to ask you what sort of inspired you to do a part two, or why did you think that was necessary? I feel like her family overall is very, very interesting. And I feel like I tried to cram a lot of information into the first book. And I think having the second one as almost a companion can help a person interested in history or the time period understand more about the motivations of her family and what they were facing back home. And also how her family continued to interact with the Tudor court even after Anna's death. Yeah, that's really interesting. And I find that she's becoming a lot more popular lately. You know, I find that people email me and say, oh, can we have more, you know, episodes on Anne of Cleves, which is great because, of course, she was kind of the the one left to the side for a long time. So I think the work you're doing is absolutely brilliant. Thank Um, you. So what was life like in the Duchy of Cleves at the time of Anne's birth in in 1515? And, And who were the major European powers at that time? Tradition holds that she and her older sister, Zabella, were born in the castle, the Ducal Palace in Dusseldorf, which was owned by her maternal grandparents. I don't know for sure that she was born there. It's it's kind of iffy because there had been a huge fire on Christmas right before, or excuse me, right after her parents married. So she probably, she could have been born in Cleves. That's also unlikely because his because her grandfather was still alive and living at the Cleves Castle. So she was maybe born at Schlossburg in Zollingen. We don't know for sure, but we do know that she spent a lot of time, a lot of her youth there. Her family owned castles pretty much all over the Rhineland, um, but the primary castle in which Anna grew up is Schlossburg, or it literally means castle palace. It started off as a hunting lodge in, I think, the 12th century, and then they just kept expanding it. But Anna, a day in the life for Anna would have been... She would have awakened in the Fallensimma, which means the women's room, or it literally means the women's room, but it was a term used for the women's court, which was kind of like a separate smaller court that mirrored the men's court. And if you go into a castle like Schlossburg, you'll see the Great Hall, and which is where the men conducted business. And then across the hallway from there, across the foyer, is where the Fallensimma would be. And the women do things like weaving or embroidery, socializing with each other. And then in the afternoons, they would usually go and socialize with the main court with the men from the Cleves court. And they would always have a governess present to protect the virtue of 
the noble daughters that were there. Anna's cousins were present at the Frauenzimmer, perhaps some of her illegitimate uh, sisters or her illegitimate aunts could have been there as well. We know that she had two and possibly a rumored third illegitimate sister. Don't believe she had any illegitimate brothers. And there will be more information about her sisters in my second book. And then as far as the major powers go, England wasn't really anything just yet when Anna was born. Henry VIII had been king for about six years. He had just gotten done attacking France. So they certainly knew of Henry at that time. The most influential political bodies in Anna's life would have been the electorate of Saxony and her elder sister married the elector of Saxony. Part of the reason why they got married had to do with settling some disputes. So that's also in the second book. Additionally, of course, the Holy Roman Emperor. So at the time of Anna's birth, that was Maximilian I, and then Charles V later became the Holy Roman Emperor when Anna was about four years old. So those were kind of the major powers. And then, of course, France. Anna was related to Louis XII, but then once he passed away, that that slipped away a little bit. But they still sometimes, because of the, the connection to the Burgundian court, there was a little bit of back and forth with France as well. Thank you. I love hearing about that little love triangle of Henry and Charles and Francis. I just, yes. it's yes. just the, honestly, they do behave like schoolboys so much of the time <laughs> that it's just, you just marvel, oh, yeah. don't you? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's fantastic. All right. So, I don't know if the listeners know very much about Anne's parents. So could you tell us a little bit about, about her parents? Who were they? What were they like? Sure. So her father, Johann III, he was the third Duke of Cleves. Uh, Cleves didn't become a duchy until the early uh, 15th century. Her father spoke a different dialect of German from her mother. So he had a much more Dutch influence in, or what would, we would think of as Dutch influence in his language, whereas her mom had more of a traditional German type. Uh, linguistic influence. I mean, I'm I'm using very loose terms here because there are a lot of different language groups at the time. The way that I like to compare it is it would be like someone speaking Scottish English to someone speaking American English. We could still understand each other just fine, but every once in a while there'd be a term or a word that's kind of like, what? And uh, Anna, because she spent most of her time with her mother, spoke more of the, the German dialect than the, than the quasi-Dutch dialect. Her great-grandfather grew up at the Burgundian court and he married a Burgundian bride. And so they had very, very close ties in that way. And slightly with the House of Valois, I'm under the impression, don't quote me on this, but I believe that Charles the Bold was the last Valois Duke of Burgundy. If I remember correctly, I might be mistaken about that. But if that is the case, they were tied in with the, eventually with the French royal family through Francis I. And as I mentioned before too, they were related to Louis Twelfth. His mother was Marie de Cleve, uh, Mary of Cleves, who was a relative of Anna's, a forebear of Anna's. And so her father was regarded during his lifetime as Johann the Simple. And so whether that means that he was simple-minded, which is kind of the idea that I'm getting, or that he just liked to keep things peaceful and simple, which is also very possible. He is remembered to history as Johann the Peaceful. Her mother, um, there are conflicting reports about what she was like, but it appeared that she could have been the brains of the operation. She was a very attractive woman. She definitely had Johann's ear. So she was very, very Catholic. And Johann was also a Catholic, but perhaps not as starkly as Maria was. She did raise all three of her daughters to be Catholic, except the eldest daughter, Zabilla, who married the elector of Saxony, and then the youngest daughter, Amalia, who remained unmarried. They eventually both converted to Lutheranism 
I don't see any evidence that Maria was overly strict or behaved in a way that would be out of line for her culture. I do think she does get a reputation in non-German cultures for being strict and giving Anna a strict upbringing because of that, some of those differences that we were talking about, like with the Frauenzimmer and being somewhat sequestered and cloistered. And I would say if you do have questions about the Frauenzimmer, I do have an article on my website that you can look at. And also there's a bit about it in uh, the Anna Duchess of Cleves book. I think it's really interesting, isn't it? Because we don't hear too much about sort of the upbringing. And you're right, uh, you know, things that you hear tend to suggest that she was raised incredibly in a very strict environment that was kind of boring and no singing and no dancing and, you know, that sort of thing. Well, they thought the English were barbarians (laughs) and they thought that they were, I mean, with all the drinking and stuff, not that people didn't get drunk in Cleves, but my impression is that the Germans, or at least in at the Cleves court, they thought that the English were a little bit too fast and loose, loose with their alcohol and their socializing. So there was, I think it was a point of pride in German culture to keep the virtue of their women unquestionable. Whereas in the English court, as we full well know, that wasn't always the case. It wasn't as difficult for a noble woman to sneak away and have a liaison as it would have been for a woman at the Cleves court. And it's just different. It's not better better or worse. It's just different. But I think, unfortunately, it's come down to us that Anna's upbringing was really strict and that Maria was really strict. And I'm just not seeing... The evidence of that when I compare Cleves to other areas in Germany. Now, obviously, you've spent a lot of time researching Anna and her siblings, so Willem, Sibyl, and Amalia. So what makes them such fascinating or interesting subjects? I like Sibylla because I think that she was very strong-minded. I think that she was courageous for her time period. She's known to have corresponded with Martin Luther. I believe there's two letters that she sent to him that we're aware of, and who knows how many others, perhaps it was just those two, but there could have been many more. And just a very brief tangent, the Reformation period in Germany was interesting because it did allow these noble women to write to reformers, which was not something that was typical. And so there's this tiny little sliver in time where these important women were writing these letters to these important men, which you just don't normally see. So she's known for doing that. Also, she very, very courageously attempted to get back her husband after he was captured by Charles V during the Battle of Mühlberg. He was captured at the Battle of Mühlberg, and she didn't know if he was dead or alive, and her oldest son was also captured at that battle. And then Charles V went down to Wittenberg, where Zabilla was with her remaining two sons, and beat beat them up. (laughs) In Wittenberg, I don't know the proper way to say it. I want to use swear words, but that wouldn't be very polite. So he beat them, and then uh, Zabilla went in full mourning, exited the city, and went to Charles V to beg for her husband back or beg for his body back. And that takes a lot of courage because she could have been captured. And so I think she was a very, very brave person. Zabilla appears to have been an astute person. She appears to be fairly clever. And I think that that's a trait that we see with all of the Fondamak sisters with Anna and Zabilla and Amalia. Wilhelm, I really get a kick out of because first of all, he thought he was a hotshot when he became Duke of Cleves in February of 1539. And he thought that he was going to have this humongous army against Charles V by marrying Anna to the King of England and then the older sister being married to the Elector of Saxony. And then Wilhelm sneaked behind Henry's back and married a French princess. And none of it worked out the way Wilhelm wanted to. So he wound up becoming under the emperor's thumb, but then spent the rest of his life not quite committing to being wholly loyal to the emperor. And it's just kind of funny to see some of it. 
and just see how he goes back and forth and how his opinions change with the wind. And Amalia, there's not a whole lot of information about her, but one thing that I found amusing about her was that it was rumored she never married because she was far too Lutheran. I don't really know what that means, but <laughs> Me she really liked Lutheran and that was a problem, so she couldn't get married. <laughs> well, they do sound like really fascinating people, don't they? They're really interesting. I can see why you've wanted to dig deeper. So I want to talk a little bit about the castles or the palaces. You've mentioned some already that they could have spent time in so where do you think Anna and her siblings spent most time as as children and as young people Anna spent most of her time like I mentioned at Schlossburg they also owned a palace in Duren which I believe it has been rebuilt it was unfortunately destroyed during World War II and then of course there's the the Swan Castle or Schwanenburg in Cleves Wilhelm spent a lot of his time there when he became duke he rebuilt the ducal palace in Dusseldorf um, and then he eventually moved his court there there was also I think it was called Castle Hambach, which had undergone a fire in 1512, and that was rebuilt, I believe, in the 1530s. So there might have been a period of time that Anna spent there. There are also some other castles in the area that don't exist anymore. There was one in uh, Duisburg, which is kind of halfway between Cleves and Dusseldorf on the Rhine River. That was, I think it was Anga. It looks like Anger, but Anga House or something like that. I know Wilhelm used that as a defensive position and kind of built up that castle, but Anna might have stayed there. So the Rhine itself, just in general in Germany, is dotted with a lot of castles, but most of Anna's time would have spent been spent at Schlossburg in Zollingen, as far as I'm aware. Do you have a favorite one that you enjoy visiting? I like Zollingen the most, but I have to say that that's the only, that one is in pristine condition darn near um the Cleves castle was destroyed during world war ii and i think it might have been used as a prison before that so it wouldn't have been in the same state um, they did rebuild some of the main features of it but it's you go in there and it's just whitewashed walls and then the ducal palace all that's left is one of the towers and that is now a maritime museum and then the one the anga house that one you can kind of see bricks sticking out of the ground because it's on the corner of like the Anga Creek and the Rhine River and so not a whole lot of them are left so you need quite a bit of imagination when you do those trips don't you (laughs) to imagine the past so let's talk a little bit about the education that the children would have received so how would Anna's and her sister's education have been different from that of, of Willem's do you think? Both educations were practical, but in very different ways. So Wilhelm was prepared to be a politician and a diplomat, effectively. He learned French and Latin. He might have been exposed to English. I don't have any direct evidence of that, but it's possible. But he would have learned French and Latin. And his dialect of German was much closer to his father's dialect. And you can see that when looking at the like the parliamentary records, from Ulrich Klebsberg, Ulrich Kleberberg. He also was heavily influenced by Erasmus via the blessing of his parents. So there was a book that was dedicated to Wilhelm, I believe, from Erasmus. Wilhelm would have received military training, things along those lines. Anna and her sisters probably had a passing knowledge of Latin in the way that when you go to Latin mass, you understand Latin. It wouldn't surprise me if she had learned French. There's very, very little documentation about the childhood of the Fondamach siblings. It's more so just about Wilhelm because he's the boy. But it wouldn't surprise me if she learned French because of the ties to the Burgundian court and, and also just in general, it wouldn't make sense for her to learn a language like Spanish or English because it would have been fairly inconceivable for her to marry 
someone outside the Holy Roman Empire. And there were some French speaking territories like the Duke of Lorraine, his son, Francis, he was a French speaker. And Lorraine at the time was part of the Holy Roman Empire. So she could learn French for that. So that's, that's why I'm saying it, would, it wouldn't surprise me if she knew French. Um, and then she knew church Latin, I guess you could say, and then spoke German. And like I mentioned before, her dialect of German and that of her sisters was much more close to her mother's dialect of German because that's who they were around all the time. They were around their maternal cousins. They may have had their illegitimate sisters there and any perhaps illegitimate aunts. I know that there were other noble daughters would be sent to court. So instead of having, I think in the English system, I'm thinking of Catherine Willoughby. So she would have had a guardian. And I know that that's not the right term, but she would have had a guardian or something like that. Um, Or there would be maids of honor sent to the Tudor court to serve the queen. Instead, these young ladies from around the duchy, the United Duchies would have been sent to the Cleves court to be raised in the Falunsima with Anna and her sisters. Anna would have learned things like how to cook. She would have learned basics of accounting so that she knew how to take care of a household and run a household. She knew how to mend clothes. She would have learned how to embroider. Uh, There was a a popular pastime amongst German princesses that they would send each other more and more extravagant gifts of embroidery and things like that, which is kind of fun. I hope that answers the question. (laughs) Absolutely. And so I'm just thinking with the, when you mentioned the French, that she possibly had a kind of understanding of French that obviously would have been useful to her when she came to England considering that most of them were French speakers as well. Is there any record that she communicated in French when she arrived? No, there isn't. But there's also not a record that she used a translator, except Mm. for when things were being communicated to her about the ending of her marriage. Yeah, So. so it's possible that she did perhaps use her knowledge of French. Yeah. And like I said, I don't know for sure that she knew French. It's just it wouldn't surprise me if she did. I don't know if or when she ever used a translator, because when you look at the contemporary records of her coming even to Calais, it doesn't say Anna spoke through her translator. That's right, which is intriguing, isn't it? Because it means they were communicating in some language. I don't know which one. Yeah. So before 1538, did Anne's family have any contact? You've mentioned a couple of little things there with Henry VIII's court. Absolutely. So one of her illegitimate uncles, and I'm using his name known to posterity, his name was John the Bastard. They really liked the name Johan in the in the Cleves Ducal family, so his name would have been Johan, but he was known as John the Bastard, and he had built up a pretty good military career for him and came to the attention of Henry through reports of, of what was going on over in France when Henry was fighting with France. And then also in, I believe it was 1521, when Charles V visited England, Anna's dad was part of the entourage. There are more details on that in, the, in my second book, but it is entirely possible that the two could have conversed and had no idea that less than 20 years later, Anna would become Queen of England. But another interesting thing is in the early 1530s, when word got out across Europe that Henry was looking for a new bride, or at least looking to get rid of the old one, both Anna and Amalia were recommended by Johann to Henry as potential brides. So they had come to Henry's attention as potential brides as early as I think it was 1531 or right around there. So what about Willem as a ruler? What was he kind of like? And you've touched on this a little bit already. And what was his relationship like with Henry? I know it sounds like it was a little bit up and down, but anything else that you want to say on that? Wilhelm, I think, did try to be as diplomatic as he could. He, as far as his relationship with Henry, of course, he double-crossed Henry, or at least went behind Henry's back and didn't listen to him or seek Henry's advice when pursuing the French match. And that led to the 
downfall of Anna's marriage or the undoing of Anna's marriage. So that wasn't very good. Afterwards, Wilhelm did keep contact with Henry during the Cleves War, which started marginally in October of 1542 and then carried through to September of 1543. Wilhelm was consistently reaching out to Henry to see if Henry was interested in remarrying Anna and renewing the Cleves alliance. And Wilhelm really wanted military help against the emperor from Henry VIII. At the same time, the emperor is saying, hey, Henry, you should ignore the kid from Cleves. And as a result, in my opinion, Henry then went and married Catherine Parr so he could kind of quietly slip away from uh, really responding to either one. But Wilhelm did keep in contact with Henry. Wilhelm had the most contact with Mary Tudor as one of the as one of the monarchs. Yes, there were letters exchanged between the two of them. They wrote to each other in Latin. Keep in mind that they were both Catholic. Well, Mary was a Catholic monarch and Wilhelm was a Catholic duke for all intents and purposes. And so those two exchanged the most correspondence. There wasn't a whole lot of contact between Wilhelm and Edward or Wilhelm and Elizabeth, if only because they were Protestant monarchs and as I said before, Wilhelm on paper was a Catholic. Um, he lived until about 1592 and he was heavily involved with imperial activities and religious reform. Part of that was because his brother-in-law, the elector of Saxony had been deposed and he spent a few years trying to get Johann Friedrich out of prison. After that happened, he then had to look out for his own children and what was going to happen with them. He did suffer some strokes, I believe, in right around 1566. And then after that, it's difficult to see where the line is between Wilhelm ruling versus ruling through a council. But overall, he wasn't known as Wilhelm the Rich during his lifetime. He was known as Wilhelm the Spendthrift. I love all the little um, names. They're great, aren't they? It's amazing. I have to tell you, with researching this German stuff, I mean, you have all the epithets that are left to history. And then when you really look at it, like they have all these snarky names for people while they're alive. Like Johann the Peaceful was actually Johann the Simple and Wilhelm the the Rich was actually Wilhelm the Spendthrift. And there are a couple others and they've escaped me now. But yeah, it's really funny. So, and I think he did try to toe the line between having reformed religion. So reformed in the sense of reformed Catholicism, and versus full-on Protestantism. And part of the reason why I think Wilhelm had to remain Catholic was because of the agreement that he made with the emperor. And also we have to remember that Wilhelm married a Habsburg princess. And so his children were then half Habsburg, if that makes sense. And so there was a point where Wilhelm agreed to raise his sons as Catholics and little sister Amalia, who was too Lutheran to marry anybody. She, of course, is in the Fallensimma with Wilhelm's daughters. And I believe two or three of the four became very, very staunchly Lutheran. So Amalia, Amalia is an interesting character. One of the only artifacts we have from her is a poem that she wrote or a book of poetry that she wrote or co-wrote with a cousin of hers and her relationship with this cousin that was, I think she was about nine years younger than Amalia, was deemed inappropriate. And we don't quite know why. I mentioned this in the first book a little bit. Um, I don't know if there was a romantic interest of Amalia in the the younger cousin or if they were just too close or if they were getting into trouble together um, because it's not really documented. But Amalia seemed to be very, very headstrong. And she just was unimpressed with the fact that her brother was the Duke of Cleves because it was just her brother to her. At one point, Wilhelm became enraged with Amalia, and I think this was in the 1570s, and tried to chase after her, and she wound up slamming the door in his face, and he had to break the door down, or at least he tried to break the door down. 
the two fought over religion quite a bit. And Wilhelm, though, had the final say because Amalia died in 1586 and he had her buried in the big Catholic tomb <laughs> that he had built for his family. So Wilhelm and Amalia and Wilhelm's wife, uh, Maria von Habsburg, and a couple other members of their family are all buried in the same Catholic tomb. So after Anne's marriage to Henry was annulled, she obviously remained in England. Did she have much contact with her family after that? I think she did. I don't know how meaningful it was. All of her letters were read. So she did remain in contact um, as best she could. We have to keep in mind that after the marriage was annulled and for a huge chunk of the rest of Anna's life, her family members were just busy fighting the emperor, basically. So in 1547, well, excuse me, 1542 to 1543, of course, is the Cleves War, and Wilhelm gets his butt kicked by the emperor. So that might have led to a cessation in communicating. We do know that he sent her that Wilhelm had sent her gifts. I believe he sent her a pair of falcons when possibly when she was staying at Heber Castle. But as far as any direct letters, they don't survive. Zabilla in 1547, there was that Battle of Mulberg that I was telling you about when her husband was captured. And so I'm under the impression that Zabilla and Anna did keep up a correspondence because during the time that Zabilla's husband was imprisoned, Zabilla wrote a lot of letters to her sons where she mentions talking to Anna. So again, we don't have that correspondence but there is some evidence that makes me believe that they didn't just all stop talking to each other i don't know if she talked to amalia or not i mean i would assume that she did or that she had little bits of information here and there from her correspondence with wilhelm or through wilhelm or from his ambassadors but there are no letters that meaningfully exist between anna and amalia and i was just thinking her siblings obviously outlived her by quite a long time you were saying like was it yeah. 30 years yeah. or something gosh yeah her sister zabilla died in 1553 and then anna died in 1557 and then amalia didn't die until 1586 and wilhelm died in 1592 so it was he was old like even by today's standards well that's a good innings for the 16th century isn't it for sure yeah. absolutely oh it's been so great hearing um, an update on on your work and on your books and do you have time to have our little game of 10 to go so 10 questions just to get to know you a little bit better heather a favorite childhood toy i had this fat pegasus that had light pink wings with sparkles on them and her name was starbeam and she was like a bumblebee. You know how bumblebees are so fat they shouldn't be able to fly. She was just like a bumblebee. But yes, Starbeam. I don't know. She's been lost to the sands of time, but she was my favorite. Oh, poor yeah. Starbeam. What's a series that you've recently watched or even maybe binge watched perhaps? I definitely binged uh, Bridgerton. And I'm currently, I think I just finished watching Cobra Kai. And I have a parrot whose name is Dekaios and we call her Kai and she can talk a tiny bit. And we're trying to teach her to say Cobra Kai. <laughs> I'll update you. Yeah, that's good. Cobra Kai, I like it as well. And what's a new skill that you might like to learn? I like making French style pastries. And so I've been working on that. My husband, I just got married in September and my husband got me a tart tin, like a special tin, because I've been working on making crusts. So I think continuing to work on that skill because I like, I like baking. It's fun. Yeah, it is. It's, it's very relaxing, I find it. And yeah. I do you speak other languages? I think I know that you do, but do you speak? Yes. Uh, yeah, what do you speak? I speak, I've had formal instruction in German, Spanish, and French. So I speak those three, of course, English. And then I've been, I've taught myself um, bits and snatches of Latin and Italian. Wow, that is impressive. You're like our, <laughs> the, the 16th century um, noble women. <laughs> Fantastic. Um, so what music do you like to listen to? I really like rap music. Do you? I do. 
I do. Um, it's, uh, that's probably one of the funny things about me. So I, I generally like, I'm one of those, I like all music, but I frequently listen to rap music during my commute. Very good. Um, Excellent. And what is your favorite season and why? I like autumn. I like the colors. They're, they're very pretty colors. I like the smells, both natural and manufactured. So, you know, the, the scented candles and stuff. I like those smells. I'm not a pumpkin spice latte person. I, I must say I'm more of a peppermint mocha type person, but yeah, I just, I like the colors. We have very beautiful trees up here in the fall and I like the slightly cooler weather. I don't do well in really, really hot weather, unfortunately. So what is something that always cheers you up? My birds. I have three parrots. I know I mentioned one before, but uh, they're my little research buddies. I'm looking at them right now and they're all preying themselves and getting ready for a nap, but they always make me happy. Uh There's pictures of them on my Instagram if you want to see them. Yes, I will. I'll go and have a look. That's really sweet. So Heather, what's something that you're looking forward to in 2021? Well, I'm looking forward to turning in my second book. Um, And then I'm also really looking forward to the summertime. I'm looking forward to being outside more um, and being able to to spend time with my family because where I live, it's right now it's about negative five Celsius or about 20 degrees Fahrenheit. So you just can't do a whole lot. So I'm just looking forward to the summer um, and I'm hoping to have my master's degree finished this year. I'm kind of on the three-year plan with that right now. So that's what I'm looking forward to. Well, that's a lot of fantastic stuff. And are we going to see your book published this year do you think or next year it was pushed back to next year because of the the pandemic so the last I heard was May of 2022 and I think that's a pretty firm date I'll definitely update you if that changes fantastic something for us to look forward to and thank you so much again for taking the time to talk Tudors with us it's been an absolute pleasure absolutely thank you well that brings us to the end of this episode of Talking Tudors Thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely love to hear from listeners. So if you have any comments or suggestions or just want to say hi, please get in touch with me via my website, www.onthetutortrail.com, where you'll also find show notes for today's episode. If you've enjoyed the show, please share the podcast with friends and family. And don't forget to subscribe, rate and review. I also invite you to join our Talking Tutors podcast group on Facebook, where you can interact with other Tudor history lovers and hear all the behind the scenes news. You'll also find me on Twitter. My handle is on the Tudor Trail and on Instagram as the most happy 78. It's time now for us to re-enter the modern world. As always, I look forward to talking Tudors with you again very soon. Music.